But the message I, I have to preach this morning is something that the Lord has been sort of baking into my heart now for about 10 years and um, feels like a fire shut up in my bones. So I, I may refer to my notes a little, um, but I mostly just want to speak to you heart to heart this morning. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, as I prayed for your people this week, I pray now, Lord, that you would open the door of the inner sanctuary of our hearts. And then you would open the door inside the door. Mm-hmm. And your Holy Spirit would flow and flood in. Lord, that your word would have its impact on us that you desire for it to have. That we would be transformed after the image of your son. Mm-hmm. Amen. 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 In 1988, the Catholic philosopher Alasdair MacIntyre wrote a book called Whose Justice? Which Rationality? It's an interesting title, isn't it? This book had a far-reaching impact on the world of ethics and morality and and, uh, philosophical ethical theory ever since. And the idea behind the book is that before we can label an action just or unjust, we need to clarify by what standard we're judging. So are we judging by the laws of our land? Are we judging by the whims of our feelings, by the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita? Are we judging by the teachings of the Bible? McIntyre points out that these differences, these different conceptions of justice, will lead us to drastically different moral conclusions. And therefore, before deciding upon a moral issue, we need to first decide where our ultimate loyalty lies. And the idea makes sense, doesn't it? Just as with our concepts of justice and rationality, I would say, brothers and sisters, submit to you this morning that it works the same way with love, right? Before we know what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves, before we can be salty salt and beamy light, we need to know what defines the shape and contours of love, who defines the shape and contours of love? Amen? Amen. All right, would you please grab a, a pew Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. It's on page 810 of your pew Bible. And our gospel reading today is from the Beatitudes and also from Jesus' teachings on salt and light. So these are two very famous passages in the gospel of Matthew. And what I want to focus on this morning is not the individual passages per se, but the connection Between two. So, what are these hinge verses that connect the two? Because remember that originally um, there were no section headings like we find in our modern English Bible, right? Both passages were a part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever given. And Jesus didn't stop in the middle and say, All right, now I'm transitioning from what I'm going to say about the Beatitudes to what I'm going to say about salt and light. Right. So there's an internal logic in this sermon that connects one idea to the next. There's a flow to the ideas that he's expressing. So traditionally, the boundaries of the Beatitudes have been verses three through verse eight. So starting with blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then ending with blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And both of these statements, they end in the same way. They create a sense of boundary and symmetry to the Beatitudes. 
But before Jesus closes the book on the Beatitudes, notice he ends up disrupting this symmetry by adding a ninth statement in verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I loved it when John was reading that gospel reading just a few moments ago because I saw somebody listening to what John was saying and following along in the scriptures. And they raised their eyebrows and they were like, dang, when it got to that part, that's the reaction that we should have when we hear Jesus say something like that. So what's going on here in verse 11 and 12 is is not uh, that uh, he's he's sort of um, adding another beatitude. This is actually a rabbinic um, teaching method that we see Jesus do elsewhere, um, where rabbis of this day, they would teach on something, and then they would think, all right, what's the part of this that's going to be really challenging or difficult? And then they would choose to elaborate on that. And so that's what's going on here. Jesus closed the Beatitudes with, blessed are you when you're, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then he's like, all right, let me unpack that a little bit more for you. All right. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. So he's elaborating and he's doubling down and he's sort of upping the ante on it. Right. We see him do the same thing. If you look at the next page in the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer is given in Matthew chapter six, verse nine. And at the very end, after the Lord's Prayer in verse 14, he says, for if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive your sins. But if you do not forgive others their sins, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your sins. So you're like, holy smokes, this is a really challenging teaching. This seems like, why, why are you going into all this? Well, the reason why he's going into it is because he had just said in the Lord's prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? And so he's saying... Look, there's a danger that they might miss this or dismiss this part. And this is really hard. And they're going to want to just breeze by this because it's really hard to forgive people, isn't it? And so Jesus is saying, I want to make sure that they don't miss this. So he he sort of if, if the first thing he said didn't cut us to the heart, he sort of twists the dagger. Right. And, uh, and you know, and he, he makes his point about the importance of forgiveness utterly plain. Well, it's the same thing. That's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, in uh, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is elaborating on what he just said. Blessed are you when people utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So notice, interestingly, Jesus places himself at the very center of our priorities on my account. I just want to. I just want to sort of turn up the microscope for a second on these verses because I think Jesus is actually wanting us not to miss it. So let's make sure that we don't miss it. And I think that this message is actually medicine to our souls in this cultural moment. So let's let's kind of walk through this. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, falsely. Now, that's an important word of clarification. He's not saying, blessed are you when others revile you because you act like a big jerk. (laughs) He's not saying, blessed are you when others revile you because you're late to work for the 10th time, right? There's no blessing in that. But blessed are you when you're reviled falsely. And then Jesus says, falsely on my account. So whose justice? Which rationality? Jesus is saying, my justice, right? You're my disciples, 
So I'm going to teach you what love means. I'm going to teach you what justice means. I'm going to teach you what righteousness means. Listen up, he's saying. And he continues, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, Jesus is saying, rejoice that the world looks at you and you look upside down. Because the world's upside down. Rejoice when the world looks at you and they say, you look backwards. Because the world is backwards. And Jesus is saying, that's, that's how they treated the prophets who were before you. You know, I want to know how the prophets were received. They were received with persecution. And so he says, you're in good company in the kingdom of God if people react to you in that way. Now, I just want us to pause and acknowledge how strange and baffling and potentially horrifying this verse is. Because mm. I don't know about you, but... To be reviled and persecuted and have all kinds of evil uttered against me falsely, that sounds like a nightmare, not a blessing. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. And I think this is especially the case in our modern climate of social media. Jesus would never say this kind of thing if he thought that our primary concern should be our Twitter feed. Yeah. Or whether somebody likes our comments on Facebook. Or whether the world labels Bible-believing Christians as closed-minded bigots. Mm. That's not his primary concern. So continuing on with verse 13, and remember, no pauses, no section headings. Jesus goes right into the next part, linking it with what he just said. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can it be made salty again? How did the salt lose its taste? Because it wasn't willing to stand with the prophets. How did the salt lose its taste? Because it wasn't willing to be persecuted for Christ's sake. It wasn't willing to be misunderstood. It wasn't willing to be thought backwards and upside down. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. He's saying we actually lose our ability to do good to the world. These are connected, actually. The mission of God, our effectiveness in the mission of God, is directly connected to our faithfulness to Christ. Amen. Because it's at that exact pivot point that we actually become useful to the world. The very thing that might cause you to be hated is the salty thing that might edify someone. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's not because we're just so relevant... And we look so cool and we say everything in just the right kind of way that we're salty. Mm -hmm. We're salty first and foremost because of our fidelity to Christ. Amen. Amen. So when we're having a conversation with somebody, it's like you're having a conversation with somebody who doesn't know the Lord. Our primary concern, we should be listening with our right ear to Christ and to what he would have us say. And only as a far secondary concern with our left ear to how to put this in a way that the person might understand and appreciate, right? And I think we get that dramatically backwards and we lose our saltiness. These things are connected. So we have to listen with our right ear and understand that our faithfulness to Christ in this conversation is our first and, and primary concern. And in this way, you can see how the two greatest commandments that Jesus gives. John just read them out earlier. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. If you get the first one wrong, you will not get the second one right. Amen. You might have a bleeding heart. You might wish you were making an impact. But if you're not faithful to the God of the universe, you're not going to do them any good. Yeah. You're going to be an enabler. 
To make this point clear, more clear, I want to I wanna share a story from a couple of years back. How many of you guys have ever been to Cow Day at Chick-fil-A? <laughs> so once a year, Chick-fil-A offers a free meal to anyone who's willing to dress like a cow. Uh, so people wear polka dot shirts and ears or tape spots on their shirts haphazardly. It doesn't have to be elaborate uh, or anything. It just You just have to make some kind of effort. And, uh, and they'll give you a free meal. Well, anyone who appreciates free food and knows how frugal my wife is will know that Cow Day is like a minor holiday in the boat. <laughs> and a couple of years ago, we were standing in line at Cow Day. It was this long line going out the door. And I was there with some friends. And, um, and we got into a good conversation with this lady that was standing by us. And after we'd been talking for about five minutes, she started to feel more comfortable. And she brought up the topic of gay marriage. And I think she just assumed, because we're a bit younger than her or whatever, that, that we would fully agree with what she was saying to us. So she was just kind of talking and she told us about her Christian neighbors who she thought were so bigoted, so narrow-minded because they had a gay son or daughter. And I can't remember which, but they were opposed to their child having a same-sex marriage. And, and so she kind of brought this up. So, so here we are, standing in the line at Chick-fil-A, getting into deep moral and political topics with total strangers, and meanwhile, we're all dressed like cats. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> now, as often as not, I'll just hold my tongue in these kinds of situations, and often that's the right thing to do, because you can open the can, and you might end up doing more harm than good, and that's very true. But in this moment, I, I, I felt moved in my heart to at least ask her a question. Mm. And this is what I said. I said, you may be right. I said, your neighbor may be totally hateful and bigoted in their hearts toward their gay child, and that would be really wrong. Mm -hmm. And I said, um, but I want to ask you to entertain a different scenario with me. I said, what if your neighbors truly believe that their child was made by a loving and purposeful creator? And that that creator has communicated certain designs for our sexual lives and that it will actually harm them, harm them, do them deep harm to their souls to deviate from God's design. And I could see that the lady was tracking with me and this was like a totally new thought to her, right? So I continued, I said, if this were the case, wouldn't it be actually unloving for these parents to affirm their child in any matter, not just gay marriage, but any matter that they believe is contrary to the good and loving and beautiful designs of their creator for them? Yeah. And when I finished, I paused and looked at the Lord, lady and I sort of expected her to just dismiss me and get really angry. But, it, it, but that didn't, that's not what happened. Actually, her face really softened. And she just kind of slowed down and breathed. And she said, you know, thank you. Thank you for sharing with me that perspective. Because sometimes I get so caught up in my own beliefs that I don't slow down and think, oh, maybe somebody's trying to love somebody according to their beliefs. Yeah. Now, these kinds of interactions happen a thousand times a day. But what I thought was unique in this situation besides, its, of course, the cow costume, <laughs> was this woman's open-mindedness. Yeah. She was beginning to grasp the real question, the issue underneath the issue, 
is who gets to define what we mean by the word love. Is it defined by our subjective feelings, sort of like a boo-hooray theory of morality? I say boo, you say hooray, who can decide between us? Is it decided by our places of employment? Is it decided by our ever-changing political climate? Or is it possible that it's defined by a good creator? Mm -hmm. And if we as Christians want to be people who have any shred of moral integrity toward those closest to us, and even to our enemies, then our moral beliefs should not be based on flight of fancy or the path of least resistance or what we wish to be the case. They should be as much as possible based upon what we know to be true according to Jesus. True love, brothers and sisters, is always informed by true truth. And the way that we inhabit the truth should always be informed by love. So we're not just sort of like shock jock jerks, you know, sort of peddling our opinions about the truth and not really caring about people. We care very deeply. Would we weep for the people that we disagree with Mm. is a good question to ask. And that's why we look at Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who the scriptures declare to be full of grace and truth. Yes, Jesus was full of grace and truth. Now, I think there's a place for winsomeness in the Christian life. And that's not really what this talk is about. And we could talk about that another time. Jesus himself is often very winsome. But I think in our cultural context, we tend to drastically overestimate the importance of being light. Mm. We walk on eggshells instead of walking by faith. Mm And this goes for preachers, too, so please pray for John and us as often as you think about it, because we're tempted to care more about being light and preaching the kind of sermon that grows congregations than we are oftentimes about fidelity to Christ and what would he have us say and what would be honoring to him. As I read through the Gospels, I find Jesus saying so many things. He would never say, if likability and popularity were his highest goal. He loved people, but he was emphatically not a people pleaser. He just spoke the truth in love and trusted the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. In fact, as Russell Moore points out, he says, you'll notice that whenever Jesus is being well-received, he always concludes that he's being misunderstood. And he continues to press the message of the gospel until there's a sense of shock, a sense of an alarm. And this is so true. Jesus often starts by saying something really hard, as we said, that cuts us to the heart. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then he twists the knife. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. But we must remember that these are loving wounds. The book of Proverbs says the wounds of a friend can be trusted. And Jesus is the ultimate friend, guys. He is the lover of our souls. The reason why Jesus is so adamant about forgiveness when he talks about the Lord's Prayer is because unforgiveness towards other people is not only contrary to the gospel, it's poison to our souls and our existence. 
And the reason why Jesus is so adamant about loyalty to himself in the Beatitudes is that people-pleasing can be just as poisonous, guys. In the one case, you become a slave to what others have done. In the other case, you become a slave to what others might think. Either way, that's not the kind of gospel freedom that is offered in the New Testament. Dr. Gene Twenge is a psychology professor at San Diego State University who specializes in researching generational differences. And in 2017, she wrote a book about the current generation of youth, those who are born somewhere between the mid-90s and the mid-2000s. They're oftentimes referred to as Generation Z, but listen to the title of her book. This is the title. Um, The title is iGen, she calls them. Why today's super-connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood, Mm. and what that means for the rest of us. Mm. Twinge writes, in the next decade, we may see more young people who know just the right emoji for a situation, but not the right facial expression. (laughs) Let me share with you a few more insights from this book, she says, iGen is on the verge of the most severe mental health crisis for young people in decades. On the surface, though, everything seems fine. She continues, more young people are experiencing not just symptoms of depression and not just feelings of anxiety, but clinically diagnosable major depression. And Twin says that the reason for this is that iGen is obsessed with what she calls emotional safety. Mm-hmm. She writes, wanting to feel safe all of the time can also lead to wanting to protect against emotional upset, including preventing bad experiences, sidestepping situations that might be uncomfortable, and avoiding people with ideas different from your own. So, in biblical language, fear and people-pleasing. That's what that is. And imagine how difficult it is for this generation to hear Jesus' words, blessed are you when others revile you. For that's what they did to the prophets who were before you. These words are bound to cut this generation especially to the heart, to the core, not only, but also to provide that deep medicine to our core that we truly need. To be a people pleaser leads to manyness and muchness, a psychotic flurry of managing our fears and managing other people's opinions, to laying up in bed at night and punishing ourselves for every verbal mistake that we made that day. But there's a healthful simplicity to letting Jesus be our only concern and living our lives before an audience of one. As C.S. Lewis puts it, aim at heaven and you'll get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Mm-hmm. Now before I close, let me summarize. And I think all of this can be boiled down to three truths. All right. So the first truth is that in the end, it only matters what Jesus thinks about you. Yep. Mm-hmm. It only matters what Jesus thinks about you. And... It's with much danger to our souls that we start being concerned with the voices of others before we consider the voice of Jesus. That's right. 
Number two, that you're called to have a loving impact in this world, to be salt and light. And number three, that if you mess up number one, you'll mess up number two. Right? So in other words, if your efforts to love people become people-centered rather than God-centered, then your efforts to love will be tainted with this fatal flaw that you won't be loving them according to God's definition of love, God's definition of justice, God's definition of righteousness. That's good. But how does this work? How can it be that we can be used by God to have a major salty impact on the world while at the same time being hated and reviled by people for Jesus' sake? How does that even work? Mm. Well, you may know that there was a time when Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the most widely hated men in America. Now, most people herald him today as one of the great American heroes, but there was a time when that was not so, when even many of his closest allies abandoned him. We get a sense of this in his letter to a Birmingham jail. King was in jail for his nonviolent protests in Birmingham in 1963. And while in jail, he began to receive criticism from other clergy people. Moderate clergy people, they told him that he was stirring up trouble, he needed to be more patient, and they accused him of being an extremist. Now listen to King's response. He writes, Though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. (laughs) Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos the prophet an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me God. King concludes, the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Mm -hmm. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of justice and the extension of justice in this country or not? What a great example of how our impact in the world can be directly connected to our willingness to be hated. But that's a big example and heroic and maybe hard for us to relate to. Maybe our alignment with Jesus will show up in more subtle ways. Maybe God will use you to lovingly confront an alcoholic family member when everyone else is avoiding the elephant in the room. Or maybe you'll be the one to encourage a friend to remain true to their marriage vows when things are getting really rough and they're contemplating leaving their spouse. Or maybe he'll use you to upset the apple cart in the political conversation and he'll use you to prophetically confuse the liberals and conservatives alike because your primary concern is devotion to the kingdom of God and to be a citizen of heaven. I want to challenge you this morning once and for all. Are you going to adopt your own definition of justice? Are you going to adopt your creator's? Are you going to submit to the world's definition of love? Are you going to embrace Jesus' definition? And maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you've never willingly granted Jesus that kind of access to your life. But I believe the stakes couldn't be higher. Not only is it essential for our souls, but also if we don't align ourselves in this ultimate sense with Christ, 
regardless of what others think, we will be no good to the world. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And as Christ himself has said, if salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Mm. As I close this morning, I want to invite Scott up here to sing a song that he introduced me to recently and I think will minister to us. I just want to create a little bit of space for prayer. So um, if you're able to kneel and want to kneel, um, I would encourage you to do that. If you'd like to sit, that's okay too. If you'd like to stand, that's okay too. And I just want Scott to um, minister to us through this song. And then I'm going to pray for us a little bit more and we'll go directly into a portion of the prayers of the people. Father in heaven, as Scott sings this song, I pray that we would be confronted with the saltiness of your kingdom word and with the otherworldliness of your son so that we might truly love the world after his image. You say that you are my sheep why aren't you following me? You say that I am your shepherd. Why aren't you following me? My sheep hear my voice. They come running to me, running to me, and you say, I am your shepherd, why aren't you following me? 